Radio Mano Papachango. Washington State here just driving to work like I do you know every day Monday through Friday and uh, I was actually listening to one of your podcasts and I need to stop and record this because I you know I was thinking about what it is about your podcast I love so much and what I think it is is you know when you're waking up at five in the morning Monday through Friday going to work and then you do that, you know, every week when you get on the weekends, you got chores, you got to clean the house, mow the lawn, pay the fucking bills. It's super easy to get distracted from all, you know, the good things in life, the, the natural beauty to appreciate views and mountains and hills and waterfalls and trees and, you know, the people you love. And uh, I love your podcast because it kind of pulls me out of the minutiae of all the bullshit and uh, helps me refocus on that. So really appreciate it, man. Uh, Keep it going. Thank you, Mike. That's awesome. Really appreciate that message. Um, Yeah, the minutiae, the dailiness of life. I remember reading that phrase in a poem way back when in when I was in college I think a poem by Randall Jarrell um yeah he he was talking about uh, I think it's called uh, a, a sad heart in the supermarket I think man I haven't thought about that in a long time but anyway he uses the phrase the dailiness of life and and he he talks about how the magic of life can get drained by the familiarity of the day after day. It's it's something I think about a lot. And um, it makes me really happy to hear that somehow this podcast is is helping you to to see through that because it's it's such a strange thing, right? It, it's it's like when we think of the future we imagine all these amazing experiences that we're going to have, some of which we do actually have. And when we think of the past, we think of these incredible places we've been and these people we've known and, and just the magical reality of life on earth. But in the day to day, it's, it's like these, these incredible delicious foods that are all covered with the same cheese sauce this like fucking nacho cheese sauce or something or or you know buffalo wing sauce or something where where the individual flavors are subsumed in this familiar overpowering dailiness i mean i'm sitting in madrid right now um and it's awesome 
And and I'm sure a lot of you listening to this are thinking like, wow, Madrid, I've never been to Madrid. I'd love to go to Madrid. I could go to the museum. I could see these incredible things. And it and it's true. Madrid's fucking awesome. But the reality is that I'm just sitting in a hotel room and the weather kind of sucks and I got to wash my socks and my underwear and there's a fucking ice machine in the hallway that's making noise and I'm kind of annoyed I slept through breakfast and you know whatever bullshit there's just always that background hum of our daily bullshit speaking of background hum and ice machines what is going on with ice machines and hotels Every hotel, every even fucking motel, they've all got ice machines. And it seems like a really important thing. Like on every floor, there's a little room where there's the ice machine and it's humming away and it's making ice. Who the fuck uses the ice? What, what, what's going on? I feel like I like there's something happening that I I'm left out of. Like there's some hotel ice machine culture that's being kept secret for me. Who who uses ice? What what do you use it for? I mean, are people just like pounding champagne in their rooms all the time? Like I I, I don't know what I would even do with the ice. I I don't know. Maybe Wim Hof knows. I I have no idea. But it's a strange thing, you know, that there's a fucking ice machine. I mean, anyway, uh, that's that's neither here nor there, but it is here and it is there. That's the thing. What's the opposite of neither here nor there? Here and there. Yeah. Anyway, so the dailiness of life. Yeah, I, I feel like maybe the 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 purpose of so many of the things we do, the me- meditation and the awareness, the mindfulness that that we're all striving for, that seems to be the essential struggle of our lives, right? Because all the social media, all the screens, all the the uh, attention-grabbing technologies are trying to pull us away from this central awareness of how fucking magical it all is. I think it was Einstein who said there are two ways to look at life, either nothing is miraculous or everything is miraculous. And I think objectively, you can say everything is miraculous because ultimately, no matter how, you know, rational and and smug and scoffing someone is, ultimately they have to admit the base level fact which is that none of us have any fucking clue what the hell is going on we're some sort of weird life form that evolved on this rock that's spinning through emptiness and eternity around a fireball and it is all a freaking mystery and a miracle and beyond our comprehension so Objectively, I think we can say that life is miraculous and it's so weird that we've developed a culture that seems determined to convince us otherwise. 
Wow. Okay, this is Aroma. And uh, before I get too far into it, I want to remind you, I'm on Substack now. And uh, one of the things that happens on Substack is lots of conversation. So I will put a link in the show notes to a thread uh, that is um, just about this episode. Uh, I hope you'll come and talk about the things that I talk about. Uh, you don't necessarily need to come to, to talk to me. You come to talk to each other. I set up an open thread about a week ago. There are like 170 different people in there talking now. Uh, it's awesome. So I want to invite you, those of you who are listening to the podcast, um, look on the sh- in the show notes. You'll see it in your app. Um, if not, just go to chrisryan.substack.com and you will see uh, the episode there. You can comment on this stuff. I'm going to be talking about some pretty interesting questions that people have sent in. All right, let's go to the next intro snip. Hi, Chris. Hope you're well. This is Adam, who did the illustrations for Tangentially Reading. I'm currently living and I'm from Sunderland, which is in the northeast of the UK. I'm doing the final year of my PhD in design here. I turned 31 last week, so I'm considering the next steps in my career and life. And rather than go down the standard academic route of lecturing, I'm thinking about going to Nepal to do a yoga teacher training course. And I don't think that I'd have made such a bold move had I not been part of the tangentially speaking community and had the presence of you in my life. So thank you so much. I really appreciate all that you've done for me personally and much love. Adam, I've never met Adam. I almost did. I I managed to introduce him to Stanley and the two of them hung out. Um, for some reason I couldn't make it. I, I was out of town or something, but Adam McDade, if you want to check out his work, he's, uh, an illustrator, tattooist, lecturer, researcher, and, uh, yeah, man about town, Adam McDade illustration on Instagram. Um, thank you, Adam. Uh, I know this message, you probably sent this out a year ago or more. Uh, I don't know if Adam made it to Nepal. I know he was in Vietnam for a while. Um, Anyway, really cool dude, and he did all those illustrations for the Tangentially Reading book. Um, didn't charge us anything. He just uh, contributed his, his talent and his work, and uh, as you'll see, if you check him out on Instagram, he's a very talented dude. Thank you, Adam. Let's do the next one. Hey, Chris, this is a uh, nondescript human from an undisclosed location on Earth, and I uh, just wanted to say that Really appreciate your podcast. <clears throat> I've been listening for, I don't know, three years now. And I don't think I've missed an episode. Um, yeah, a lot of love comes through. And uh, I really resonate with, you know, the the words between the lines and the feelings between the lines. So just wanted to give you encouragement, let you know that there's a lot of people out here that have a lot of love for you. And uh, as much as you can repeat stories thousands and thousands of times, we still love hearing them. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, sorry about those repetitions. Love you too. Thank you. It's very sweet. Um, yeah, it's such a strange, it, I, I talk about that. I'm going to repeat myself again. It's such a strange relationship that we have, isn't it? Uh, I'm sitting alone in a room and yet I'm feeling a connection with you, nondescript human in undisclosed location. 
And I can just hear in the sound of your voice and the fact that you took the time to send that and had the impulse to say those things like you're a good dude. I I like you. I'd love you. Maybe I'd feel I'd certainly feel connected to you. And that is such a strange, surreal, miraculous thing. So I don't know. Don't know what to say. Don't know what to do except uh, carry on, I guess. All right. So in this episode, I'm going to respond to um, actually I'm responding. A couple of these are things that people posted in that open thread that I mentioned. Um, and they're just so kind of in depth that rather than responding in writing, um, I thought I would use them as fuel for contemplation and uh, Roma fuel. So this is from Bo. He says, uh I'm facing a similar situation to what you faced in your 20s when you had to break up with your girlfriend because she wanted kids and you didn't. I'm uh, that was actually in my 30s. But yeah, Uh, he says I'm 28 and in the same boat right now. I genuinely don't know what to do. I love her, but I don't want kids anytime soon, if at all. Does that mean I don't truly love her since I wouldn't do anything for her? Um. Yeah. He says, if that woman uh, didn't want kids, would you still be with her? Sometimes the idea of settling down scares me more than being alone. Why is that? Why don't I want kids? Is it just my age or do I fear my own creations? Uh, He says, we're compatible in every other way for the most part. (laughs) That's an interesting sentence, right? Compatible in every other way for the most part. Uh, But being a father isn't something I feel I need to do. Should I have kids and sacrifice my own desires for hers? Is that true love? Hmm. How do I navigate this painful process of assessing my love and future? I fear that the answer isn't determined by right or wrong, but something more akin to a spectrum of acceptance of pain. That's interesting. I'm too close to this and can't accurately understand my own positions. Yeah. Okay, so there's a lot going on here uh, and a lot of specifics, but also the reason I wanted to talk about this in this episode is because there are also a lot of general uh, characteristics of a of a almost universal struggle that I think we all face. So first of all, I've got no answers. There, there are no answers, um, but... You know, I have a few thoughts. So, um, you know, to be very concrete, he asks, if that woman didn't want kids, would you still be with her? No, I would not. Um, The fact that she wanted kids and I didn't was the tip of a much larger iceberg, of course, right? It's not, in our case, it wasn't about the kids so much. It was about what kind of life we were looking forward to, uh, what kind of life we envisioned for ourselves. And, you know, when I met her, she was quite young. She was 19. I was 29. And um, we kind of, uh, I, th- I think, 
I don't know if she felt this, but I certainly felt like, okay, she's she's so young. Being with me is going to nurture parts of her personality that are going to develop more. Um, and and she felt that as well. I know because she wanted, you know, she was like, wow, you're, you know, American. And we went to San Francisco together and, and I sort of showed her the world a little bit and, you know, and. In, introduced her to different ideas and books and films and all that kind of stuff. And um, and I think what happened with us was that rather than her using me as a way to grow in a certain way, she, I was sort of a detour. But she wanted a different kind of life. She wanted a life that was more, I would say, from my perspective, more conventional uh, and kids were part of that. Um, and, you know, she wanted she wasn't like an adventurer or, or um, you know, fascinated by ideas and things the way I was. And so the kid thing was sort of a stand in for a larger sense of what kind of life do you want? How much risk do you want? How important is comfort? How important is money? Um, you know, those sorts of things. And so we had a really good time together and and loved each other and still love each other. Um, but I think that our paths converged there for a little while, but we were essentially going in different directions. And I think this is the problem. You know, we we cross paths with someone or, or our paths come together and we we travel together for a while through life and we come to love each other. And so we naturally don't want to separate. We don't want to, to, to leave each other. We don't want to lose this beautiful feeling that we have in being with each other. But on another level, we know that our path is pulling in a different direction. You know, I was headed northeast and she was headed northwest. And for a while we came together and we went north together because, okay, I'm getting closer to my destination and you're getting closer to your destination as we go north. But but at a certain point, you're like, ah, no, I got to turn east and you need to turn west. We can't just keep going north forever. And and that's the that's painful because, as I said, because, you know, if you're an open hearted person, you love other people. And when you love other people, you don't want them to fade out. And you don't want to fade out of their lives. But because of the way the world is sometimes i i mean i know i have a tendency to sort of think oh everything was better for hunter gatherers you know i don't know you know you could you could have a relationship with someone in a hunter gatherer community and then the relationship could the romantic part of it could come to an end but that person is still in your life they're still in the band you still have them they're still there around the fire and hey that could be a problem that could be Maybe worse. Maybe you'd you'd rather they weren't around, um, depending on how things evolved. But pr 
assuming that there's still some sort of connection with the person, even if you don't want to continue as a couple, it's heartbreaking to, to, to give it all up, even though there's only one part of it that isn't congruent anymore. As far as having kids go, I feel like, you know, there's a category of things in life that you should only do if you absolutely have to. Um, I, when I proposed writing a book for the first time, a friend of mine who was in publishing said that to me. He's like, well, we always say to people, you should only write a book if you absolutely have to. In other words, you shouldn't do it because you want something. You shouldn't do it because you think it will give you something. You should do it because you need to do it. So, you know, I don't think you should have kids because you think it will make you happier or give you a sense of meaning or save your relationship or do a favor for someone you love. Those sorts of secondary motivations, I think, are problematic for something like this. I think we should have children because we feel like we need to. Like, that's what I need to do. I really want to give my life to raising children. And I see people who do that, who are really good parents, who commit to it and those are happy kids because those kids know that they are the center of that family and that that family is there for them but when i see people who have kids for secondary reasons and then you know the relationship ends and the kids are being raised by people who don't necessarily love each other or a single parent or a resentful parent or any of that stuff, you know, that's, that's sad. I think it's really important for kids to feel that they are loved and wanted and that there's nothing accidental or, um, you know, there's there's no reason for them to exist other than the fact that these two people came together in love and really wanted to do this. I think if a kid is raised in that certainty, then that kid is going to have a good life. Um, otherwise, I no, I don't think you should have kids because you need to sacrifice your own desires for someone else's. No. No. If your desire should be congruent with someone else's, I mean, you know, like even the physical aspect, it's like you you want to create life by the two of you being so fucking into each other and so in love and so ecstatic that that life is born in your shared love and ecstasy. 
that I think is right. That's the idea. That's the way it's designed. That's why orgasm feels so fucking good because potentially that is the big bang. That's the creation of a life. And if you're not doing it that way, if it's resentful or reluctant or, um, you know, anything other than full on hell. Yeah. Then I think it's no, uh, at least for me. Um, you know, I said, I don't have answers, but these are, this is my thought on it. it. This isn't about, you know, should I rent this apartment or that apartment? This isn't, should I, you know, adopt a dog at the pound and, you know, maybe I made a mistake. I can take it back to the pound. I mean, this is, this is deeper than that. So I feel like for myself anyway, doing something that permanent bringing a human being into this world needs to be something that both of us are 100% down to do. And that doesn't mean that there's not going to be fear. There's not going to be, you know, all sorts of um, considerations that that make it complicated. Of course, it's it's always going to be complicated and, and it's going to have layers. But at base, do we really want to do this and do we want to do this together? You might turn out later to be wrong. I'm I'm not blaming anyone for falling out of love or or getting divorced or whatever. That you know, life is is complicated and the road is long and winding. But um, at least at the at the beginning, I don't think having kids is something that any of us should do for someone else. I think it's something we should do for ourselves, for the children, for the you know, it has to be a um, unanimous decision for everyone involved, I think. So that's my feeling. Okay, uh, so here's uh, another question from uh, Bremer. Uh, I have a couple questions I've been curious about. Okay, what are your thoughts on one, practicing yoga? Two, walking in nature as a daily exercise. Three, asexuality. Four, your next projects, writing or otherwise. Okay, one, practicing yoga. Great. Um, when I have had a regular yoga practice, I have felt better. Um, and it's a, I think it's a good thing. The one thing I, I it's hard for me sometimes to find a yoga practice practice i mean the the main problem is just that i move too much um i don't seem to have much stability and so of course that makes it difficult to find the school and the teacher and the class and all that and and it's like i've started at the beginner level probably 15 times um which is fine you know because it's not a competitive thing we're not trying to show off i'm certainly not um but um, the one thing that puts me off yoga sometimes is all the fucking spiritual mumbo jumbo, you know, namaste nonsense. Um, I've had, I, I don't think I've ever told this story, but I, I led a yoga rebellion once like a, 
what's it called, a mutiny against the teacher in India when I was doing yoga in Goa. Uh, I'm not going to tell that whole story now, but <clears throat> I, I, I find the sort of overbearing, arrogant yoga teacher as guru character uh, very annoying. I mean, it's fine. We're meditating and, you know, you're saying your things in Sanskrit or Hindi or whatever language it is. And, you know, this is pranamana, which actually just means like, OK, we're going to breathe through our left nostril for a few minutes. Um, that's fine. You know, that shows you did your yoga training thing in Kupangan for four weeks. Um, and, and there are some great yoga teachers. But to me, the great yoga teacher is someone who makes everyone feel comfortable, welcome, um, you know, relaxed about um, sort of following along as is comfortable for their body, not being competitive, not trying to push too hard, um, you know, and obviously showing the, the postures in the correct way and all that. I don't like the whole sort of like I am a spiritual enlightened being teaching yoga, you know, like I got no time for that. Um, but I think yoga itself as a as a physical practice is great. And I wish I had the discipline to get up every morning and do 10 sun salutations. I would be a better, healthier person. Um, but at the moment, I don't. So I'm not. Number two, walking in nature as a daily exercise. Yes, I love it. If I'm in nature, I love to walk in nature every day and uh, maybe listen to a podcast, maybe not, maybe a little music, uh, maybe just listen to the birds, uh, whatever. I think walking is the best practice. Um, and I try to walk Every day I've got one of those apps on my phone and, you know, I try to put in, I mean, it's always a struggle not to turn things into work and not to turn it into some sort of mechanized bullshit where it's like, oh, I haven't got my 6,000 steps today, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's not about that. It's about pleasure. It's like you think of your body as like a dog and you take your dog for a walk. It's not because your dog needs to work that weight off. It's because your dog enjoys being out and moving and has energy that, you know, he, he or she needs to express. And I think that's w how we should look at our bodies. Like, take your body out for a walk, you know? Be nice to your body the way you're nice to your dog. Um, you know, I don't think you should take a shit by the side of the road, but take your body for a walk. All right, number three, asexuality. I don't really know much about asexuality i know there's a you know sexuality is famously something that's experienced on a spectrum people have different sexual appetites you know more or less libidinal energy uh or chi i guess in chinese medicine uh life force uh I think I'm kind of at one end of the spectrum, so it's hard for me to uh, visualize the other end of the spectrum because I do feel like, at least in my experience, sexual energy is life energy. And so, you know, it's always been hard for me to wrap my head around the Buddhist sense of desire being a problem. I think I've talked about that before. 
Um, because desire to me is an expression of hunger and hunger is an expression of being alive. So it's a good thing um, for me, from my perspective. Now, of course, it can be a problem if you're walking around hungry all the time and you're and that affects your behavior and, and, and constricts your vision of things and makes it difficult for you to, you know, relate to to people without your hunger being uh, you know, distorting the experience. Um, but I think that for me, sexual desire is an ally and is a sort of a nutrient. Um, so it's hard for me to imagine people who, the experience of people who just find nothing in sexuality that's interesting or or um, that triggers positive feelings for them. Um, I know such people exist. I'd be interested to know, you know, is this just um, an expression of an absence of that kind of energy or is that energy being blocked in some way or channeled elsewhere? Because... I can't help thinking that sexual energy, you know, if I'm right, as I was just saying, that sexual energy is an expression of the life force, then an absence of that energy seems to be logically unlikely for a living thing. Um, you know, given the fact that from some perspectives, evolutionarily, certainly, we are you know, our prime directive is to reproduce. And so it seems that sexual energy would be, um, you know, innate to basically any living thing that reproduces sexually. So there's a logical conundrum there. Um, and I certainly don't intend to uh, negate anyone's experience. I'm, you know, if people are asexual, I take them at their word. I, I would just be interested to know how that works within the psyche of those people. You know, if if there is a flow that's being blocked or if there just is no flow, is this a, a dammed river or a dry river? Um, so I, I don't really know. I haven't read about asexuality and... Uh, I don't think I've really had any in-depth conversations with anyone. Uh, I've certainly, you know, I know people for whom sexuality is problematic, but I think that's a different kind of uh, situation. And uh, my next projects, writing or otherwise, I've got a book in, you know, early stages, sort of embryonic that's been there for quite a while. I've talked about it before. Uh, I don't know if it'll come to fruition or not. It's something I've, I'm, you know, just sort of noticing and, and filing um, research that relates to it. And unlike previous books, I want to try not to talk too much about stuff until it actually happens. Because with Civilized to Death, I think I talked about it so much while I was writing it that it took some of the energy, uh, took some of the wind out of my sails there. So I'm just going to sort of leave it abstract. I have several books. Another one is um, fictional. And I'm sort of, uh, 
So I've got one nonfiction book uh, related to sort of uh, uh, a bohemian approach to health, kind of. Uh, second one is a fictional book set in prehistory. Um, and another one would be some sort of a memoir, um, maybe even like an erotic memoir. So it would it would probably end my career uh, if I did the memoir thing, um, because from my perspective, the only reason to write a memoir is to challenge yourself to be as honest as you possibly can be. Um and because of what I was saying just earlier about how erotic energy has been, you know, sort of parallel to life energy for me, if I were to write a memoir, it would involve a lot of my interactions with women and sexuality over the years. And because that's sort of central to my sense of self, um, but if I were going to do that really honestly, I think it would uh, it would um, shock and offend uh, a lot of people. So it would probably be like, you know, a farewell, <laughs> like, all right, here it is. As I'm walking out the door, you know, here's the, the true story. So I don't know. I mean, it would be fun in a way, but it would definitely be like, uh, yeah kind of uh something i need to think about so maybe i'll do the those three but who knows maybe i won't do any of them all right thank you for that bremer okay next is from john uh want to give you some uh, context i'm a 31 year old american guy single no kids living on my own uh no debt sounds great uh, I have hopefully many years ahead of me. I see so many different potential iterations for the not yet lived future of my life. Yeah. And I certainly still am getting to know myself and understand what things I even truly like in life. I seem to think about this so often and often wish that I didn't. You know, I remember that feeling, and uh, I think it's one of these things that's often overlooked when when we, especially in a culture like the United States that celebrates youth so much, um, you know, and a guy like this is constantly being told, like, oh, these are the best days of your life, you know, you're, you got your whole life ahead of you, as if that's an unmitigated gift, when the fact is, it's a pain in the ass sometimes to have your whole life ahead of you because you have no idea how it's going to turn out. So you have a lot to be nervous about. And that uncertainty can suck. I mean, it's like, I don't know. I, 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 I remember traveling, you know, when I was much younger and I still get this sometimes, but now it's, it's different, but when I was younger and I'd be traveling and like I'm on a bus and I think I know where I'm going, but I'm not sure if I'm getting off at the right stop. And I don't know. I don't know where I'm going to sleep that night. I don't know if I'm going to find a room. I don't you know, there, there's so much uncertainty in in the next few hours that um, 
it's kind of unnerving. Now, it's, it's also exciting, of course, but it's unnerving. And then you get there and you find a place and you get a room and, okay, they've got rooms and it's it's in my budget and I can afford it and I go there and the bed's okay and, oh, it's got a shower and the hot water works. And then you're like, oh, okay, now I can relax. Now I, now I know where I'm going to sleep tonight. And life is kind of like that, or at least mine has been, where you're like, yeah, there's something great about being on the bus and having no idea where you're going to sleep tonight. But it's also a problem because you, you might not find a room. You might get there and find out, oh, it's a fucking holiday and all the rooms are, are filled and you're fucked. And you're going to sleep in the fucking bus station or, you know, find a bench in a park or something, which is going to really suck. Um, but most of the time you don't. Most of the time you find a room and it turns out OK. Um, but that uncertainty is a hassle and it's stressful. And there's something relaxing about getting to an age where you can say, OK, well, this is how my life turned out. And it's really fucking relaxing if you can look at that and say, yeah, it's not bad. I'm OK with this. And I think that's one of the things that I felt as a young guy when I was this guy's age. A lot of what I was feeling was like, I need to live my life in such a way that when I get older, I won't feel that I wasted it. And I don't mean that in terms of like, I need to, you know, fill every day. I need to like go everywhere and do everything and, you know, be super extreme. I just... I felt like I just want to be able when I'm 50 or 60 or 70 or whatever, I want to be able to look back at my life and say, well, that was fun. I didn't chicken out. I didn't hold back from doing fun and interesting things. I didn't, you know, I, I, I made myself vulnerable. I let myself fall in love, even though I knew that it was going to lead to pain. I let myself travel, even though, you know, it led to fucking diarrhea and and scorpion bites and, you know, whatever. I, I took some risks. I was intelligent about it. I allowed myself to be lucky. I exposed myself. Um you know, not in a criminal way, but expose myself to life. Uh, you know, I, I, I took the, I plunged, I, I, I jumped in the cold river sometimes, you know, I, I wasn't the guy who stood on the beach all the time saying, you oh, know, the water's too cold. Sometimes I was the guy who said, fuck it. I want to get in there. And I got in there. Not every time, not always, but enough. I feel like that's, that can take the pressure off. If you can look at your life when you're 30 or 25 or whatever and say, okay, I'm doing shit, even if it doesn't work out the way I'm hoping it will, which it won't probably, it'll work out some other way. And it'll be fine because the way I'm doing it is something I respect. So I think that's important. So anyway, the... Um, I understand, you know, what this guy says, uh, John, about, you know, I wish I didn't think about this so often. 
Um, so he says, what I'm most interested to hear are reflections and insights you can share about some of the numerous visions you may have had for your future while you were still in your early adulthood and how those may have narrowed. Right. That's that's interesting. In what meaningful ways has your relationship to the future and thinking about your personal future changed over the years? Well, I just addressed that a little bit. Um in what ways have you honed your personal decision-making process so as to cut out the superfluous visions? Interesting. Well, I would say the big change for me was when I was in college. So I was, you know, 19, 20, 21. I thought I had a pretty clear sense of what my future was going to be, um, which was I was going to finish college. I was going to go to graduate school. I was going to get a PhD in literature and I was going to teach in a university and, you know, be that guy. Uh, and I had, you know, at that time I had reason to think that, that I could do that. I was, doing very well uh, academically. I had uh, professors who were very good friends who loved me and supported me and wanted to help me on my way to, you know, go to Oxford or Harvard or wherever I wanted to go. Um, and you may have heard this story before, um, but I skipped my junior year in college and decided I wanted to um, go to Alaska and see a frontier. So I got a backpack and I hitchhiked from Geneva, New York to Seattle and then took the ferry up to uh, Haines, I think, that first year. And then I hitchhiked from Haines to Kenai and got a job in a cannery and worked there. And anyway, that experience blew my mind, and, and I've definitely, I did a whole a couple of aromas about this, so you can go back and listen to those if, if you want to hear the whole story. But basically, what happened was I reassessed my trajectory, my assumed trajectory, and where I thought I wanted to go, and the kind of person I thought I wanted to be, and I realized that I wasn't ready to do that. I might do that in the future, but, you know, I was like, 20 at this point, And I said, okay, until I'm 30, I'm not going to make any decisions. I'm going to spend the next, the rest of my twenties, just floating around the world, having experiences, working different jobs, meeting different people, just sort of enriching my perspective on what life really is. And then I'll decide it's too soon to decide what I want to do with my life. So so, I mean, it's kind of a, you know, a fork in the road, but it's more it's more like going off the road, you know, because the road was one side leads to graduate school and a certain kind of anticipatable existence. And then but the other is just like, I have no idea where this is going. It's not like it's going to A or B. It's like it's going to A or elsewhere. I have no idea what B is. So that's what I did. Um, and I remember talking to someone older than me uh, when I was 
around that age and talking about this question of like what to do with life and how to navigate things. And he said to me that when he makes, when he looks at a decision, he looked at it in terms of, does this open up opportunities or close down opportunities for me? And that resonated because, you know, there are things you can do that will restrict your options in the future. And there are other things you can do that will open up your options in the future. So for me, that was an important kind of cognitive device. Like, okay, you know, am I shutting it down here? Am I, am I narrowing or am I broadening? And everything I've done has been broadening in some sense. Like, you know, even when I finally did go to graduate school, I was in my mid thirties, I think maybe even a little later than that. And the idea was, okay, I'll get a PhD in psychology. Maybe I'll be a psychologist. Maybe I'll teach. Maybe the PhD will give me some credibility if I decide to try to write a book. In any case, this opens up possibilities for me more than it shuts down possibilities. Um, now, some people might say, well, okay, but, you know, that's sort of an immature metric uh, or a metric that is resistant to maturation in some ways. Uh, and I wouldn't necessarily disagree with that. I think in in some ways, my life has not matured in the way that a lot of people would, um, you know, consider to be standard, right? Like I haven't gone into the thing with kids. I, I haven't settled down. I don't, I, I'm talking to you from a hotel room right now. I don't have a house. I don't have a home. People ask where I'm from. I don't even know what to say. Um, you know, I lived more years in Barcelona than any other place in the world. So, but I'm certainly not Catalan, right? Um, so I'm not saying this works for everyone, you know, and but I do think it's an interesting way to look at things because, you know, you might be someone who who's really oriented toward having children. And for you, having a child opens up a world of possibilities, whereas for someone like me, having a child shuts down possibilities. So it even if we're thinking in the same way, we won't arrive at the same conclusions, right? Um, so I do think, you know, maybe another way to look at it is does each decision enrich your life or impoverish your life, right? I think as long as we're enriching it, that's a good thing. And enriching it doesn't necessarily mean selfishly adding to my list of accomplishments or experiences, sometimes you enrich your life by giving to others. And I think the one image that I come back to often in my own experience is that the first part of my life, you know, I, let's say life, adult life for me began around 20. Right before that, it was all just school and doing what other people wanted me to do or resisting it or whatever. It was all about 
expectations. From 20 on, I was doing what I wanted to do. So, okay, I'm 60. So that means 40 years I've been living my life. I would say the first 20 years of that were an inhalation in the sense that I was I was hungry, I was experiencing, I was I was taking things in. And toward the end of that 20 years, so in my 30s, I started feeling like I can't keep breathing in. I need to give. I need to give back. I need to breathe out. Now there was a lot of a lot of encouragement that I should write that you know when I would write things people would say god you should do this you're you have a voice you're this and but I always felt like yeah but I don't want to be a fraud I don't have anything I'm not old enough I don't have enough experience I the only reason I would write is to try to get attention is to try to show off or for some secondary reason I don't really have anything to write about yet so I was writing in my journal all the time but I wasn't trying to you know, pitch stories or or something to magazines. I, I was just sort of doing my own thing and I was waiting until I had something to say. And ultimately I did. And that was Sex at Dawn. And, you know, but that didn't happen till I was in my early 40s. I mean, when did Sex at Dawn came? I mean, I did my dissertation, I think, in my early 40s and then I turned it into a book by my late 40s. So, yeah, I think that, you know, there. I, I have talked about this with friends of mine, young people who, you know, like if I'm paying for dinner or something and they're like, oh, no. And I try to say to them, like, look, I for the first, you know, from 20 to 40, people were paying for my dinner. People were helping me and being generous to me in ways that I didn't quite understand. And I kind of felt unworthy. And now that I'm on the other side of that, I see how gratifying it is to have young people around that you can help, that you can, I mean, paying for dinner is a metaphor, right? But that you can put energy into because you know they're going to turn that investment into more energy and love that they're going to pass on when their time comes. And I recognize now that that's why those older people had time for me. That's why those professors wanted to help me. That's why, you know, some guy who picked me up hitchhiking took me home and fed me and bought me shoes or whatever it was like because they saw something in me like oh if I give to this guy he's gonna turn around and give to other people so that makes me feel good that's a part of me that's going into the future and honestly that's a big part of why I do this podcast why I'm you know responding to John right now because I feel like it's a way for me to amplify some of that energy that was given to me. And now I'm giving it to you and I'm trusting that you are going to pass it along and it's going to just ripple out into the world. So I don't know. I hope that doesn't sound too self-serving, but 
that's a big part of what motivates me to do this. Um, yeah. So anyway, that in what meaningful ways has your relationship to the future changed over the years? I would say that's that's a big part of it. it first of all, that I'm much more relaxed about it which is, I guess, kind of ironic because there's less future for me to think about, um, you know, in terms of chronological uh, thinking. But, yeah, it, it's like I, I, I found the hotel room and I know where I'm going to sleep. And so it's okay. It's fine. I might not sleep so well. I might die in my sleep, but at least I know where I'm going to be, you know. Um, in a metaphorical sense. And I think that's something that many people experience. I, I think the anxiety of not knowing what's going to happen is underrepresented in our conversations about the wonderful youth. It's hard being young. Um, yeah, so I think I've answered that. Um, as far as, you know, visions of my personal future, I I kind of kept it vague, I guess, uh, intentionally, because I didn't want to restrict it too much, right? I always had that sense, like, maybe I'll write, you know, but of course, nobody expects to make money writing, Um and maybe I'll teach. I knew I was pretty good at teaching. So, you know, maybe. But then the older I got, the more I realized, like, yeah, I'm not going to uh, I'm not going to be a welcome presence on an American campus. You know, like that's uh, that ship has sailed. So. And and I think that a lot of my traveling and sort of. The things that I learned over the years made me more relaxed because I didn't feel like I needed. I didn't I felt like I knew who I was. And if I just spent the rest of my life making a little money doing this or that, I'd be OK with it. Uh, it wouldn't be ideal, but ego wise, I didn't need to you know, have my name on a book or or be a professor in front of a class or whatever. Um, so it's kind of ironic that it worked out, but it worked out, you know, as many things do, uh, as I sort of gave up any uh, attachment to a particular outcome. Yeah, I guess that's that's a good way to say it. All right. I think I have responded to this. I've talked enough. I'm tired of hearing myself. Uh, it's almost an hour, so we're good. Uh, thank you for all of you who have signed up on Substack. It's uh, super cool. Every time somebody signs up, I get an email that, you know, so this email address is signed up at five bucks a month or 50 bucks a year. And every time that happens, I get a dopamine hit and feel happy and uh you know part of a community that is growing so thank you for that those of you who haven't yet uh you know i'd encourage you to do it go to substack chrisryan.substack.com and um i don't know is it dot or is it just chris ryan yeah there's a dot chrisryan.substack.com 
And uh, yeah, join the conversation. Be part of the community. You can sign up for free or you can sign up uh, for 50 bucks a year or five bucks a month. Um, if you if you pay, then you get bonus stuff. And uh, uh, and also you get an email every time I post something. But if that's a pain in the ass and that's too many emails, I've set up a thing where you can just get one email a month that sort of summarizes everything I've posted that month. And then you can go. And of course, there's the web page. So you can just go and check in whenever you want. So you can configure it in the way that works best for you. And uh, again, I encourage you, if you have anything to say about any of these issues that I've spoken about, um, please go and join the conversation. You can lurk you can read the conversation without signing up at all, but I think the way it's configured, you need to at least uh, enter your email and register so that you can participate in the conversation. So I would encourage you to do that. Um, there's a link in the show notes to this episode to that conversation. So thank you, everybody. Sending out a lot of love, and uh, I really appreciate your attention, as always. And I'll leave you with the great Carsey Blanton reminding us all that we're all going to die one day. So live life in a way that acknowledges how fucking miraculous it is. Enjoy it. I think the best way that you can acknowledge life is to enjoy it, right? Pleasure. Pleasure is good. And I don't understand societies that think pleasure is bad. There's something really anti-life about that. So, viva España, where pleasure is celebrated. All right, I'm going to go have some fucking jamón, jabugo, and red wine and enjoy my day. Hope you're doing the same. Bye. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone. ask for much a little music and a soft touch why don't you let it out to play your heart is in a birdcage singing in your chest you want to shut it up but give it a rest you're gonna die one day why do we waste our time thinking about a reputation running from Down. I don't want to give the end away, but we're going to die.
a big deal if you want to be free say what you want to feel spend the night with me i'm gonna take you up in my arms and if we must go down we'll go singing to the smoke alarms we'll dance into the ground 